How's it going, everyone? Welcome to the second episode of American Memoirs. I'm your host, Bo Gersnich, the dude cuckoo enough to spend two years reading all the U.S. presidential memoirs. And now I'm here to share some of the interesting stories and perspectives from my studies. So I hope that you enjoy it. Uh, so last episode, we talked about the election of 1824, uh, which was basically the first sign of modern politicking in American history. Uh, in that episode, we learned about Henry Clay, Martin Van Buren, and the fragility of democracy in the face of powerful individuals. Uh, so today, I want to fast forward over 100 years uh, to the late 1990s, to the spirited battle between President Bill Clinton and his main antagonist, special counsel Kenneth Starr, as well as Georgia Speaker of the House, uh, Newt Gingrich. It started, I am just going to give a quick trigger warning. We're going to be talking about sexual assault, sexual harassment, uh, molestation of minors, as well as uh, some conversations regarding suicide within this episode. So if any of that bothers you, I would uh, tune in for the next episode. If not, then uh, let's go ahead and get started. So uh, the impeachment trial of Bill Clinton was a four-year controversy garnering a lot of looks uh, with impl implications and controversy that in many ways may have been the first battle of the satirically dubbed culture wars that have plagued politics since. Uh, so now to tell the story, I want to be very sure it's not framed as a hit piece or an expose or anything meant to tarnish unfairly. Uh, this episode is a little different than the last in that most of the individuals are still alive uh, and the information available is much more than an election from 1824. So I'm going to share that my intention with this story is to talk through the actual impeachment of Bill Clinton, particularly from the perspective of Bill himself through his memoirs and my view of the ramifications of it. I think the only way, though, to get true justice with Bill Clinton's experiences is by reading Bill Clinton's memoirs, uh, which do a great job of mixing in uh, his political uh, life between, uh, you know, his governorship in Arkansas to the presidency uh, and mixing in the uh, impeachment hearings and Kenneth Starr and uh, Newt Gingrich uh, attempts to uh, get him out of power up uh, this whole thing. So I, I found that story particularly interesting. And so I wanted to summarize it uh, well in a, in a good episode. So with that being said, uh, we want to talk about how did this happen? What was the actual controversy? And to understand that context, let's first talk about the players in the game. Cool. So the first player is going to be, of course, Bill Clinton. Bill, uh, you may have known, was born William Blythe III uh, to recently widowed Virginia Del Cassidy. Uh, widowed being that Bill's father, William Blythe II, uh, had died in a car crash three months before Bill was born. Interesting thing to note there is that uh, this makes Clinton one of 12 U.S. presidents who lost or didn't know their father in childhood. That list includes Jefferson, Washington, Monroe, Jackson, Johnson, Hayes, Garfield, Cleveland, Hoover, uh, Ford, Clinton, and Obama, which is about 20, 25% of all the U.S. presidents. Uh, so Bill Clinton's father at the time of his death uh, was actually only 28 years old. Uh, at that time, William Blythe II was on his fifth marriage. Uh, so that 
fifth marriage in 28 years, uh, and that is also including a couple years that he spent uh, fighting in World War II in uh, Europe. So the family that he left behind, Virginia and Bill, uh, they actually didn't know about these other four marriages, uh, which included a couple of kids that he left behind. And they would only eventually learn about uh, the family that that Bill has uh, from his biological father after some investigative journalism leaked it all in the 90s uh, when Clinton was president and the resources were there to investigate who was this guy? What was he about? How did he spend 28 years on this earth? So at the time, I found it interesting in Bill Clinton's book, uh, in the first chapter, he wrote down his thoughts about this, which was uh, quoted, As for me, I wasn't quite sure what to make it at all. But given the life I've led, I could hardly be surprised that my father was more complicated than the idealized pictures I had lived with for nearly half a century. And I just think that's interesting to note uh, as we talk about the impeachment and Bill Clinton's infidelities, uh, you know, the context of geneticism, uh, you know, Bill Clinton's father struggled with this pretty heavily as well, whether Bill Clinton knew it at the time or not. Uh, so Bill was born. He did grow up uh, with his mother in rural Arkansas. Uh, his grandparents played a major role in, in him uh, being raised uh, he would eventually have a half-sibling named Roger Clinton Jr. with his uh, stepfather, Roger Clinton Sr. Uh, and Roger would play a difficult role in Bill's life, uh, sometimes being the dad he needed, sometimes being a reckless alcoholic who at one point was arrested for shooting a gun at Bill and his mother. Uh, regardless of that, though, uh, he would come to adopt the name Clinton for consistency with his family. Uh, although Roger never officially adopted him as a son, uh, he still felt a uh, paternal connection with Roger uh, and did take on the name of Clinton. So when he was growing up, Bill Clinton had two loves, music and politics. Uh, and so while the latter would uh, eventually bring him to the White House, he didn't leave behind the former. <laughs> I think it's very cool. Clinton uh, actually played the saxophone for the crowd at his inaugural ball in uh, 1993. Uh, and he was known to do this a lot at a lot of different events. People would bring out uh, saxophones uh, so that Bill Clinton could pay play for them. Uh, because the reality of Bill Clinton was he was a really cool baby boomer persona uh, with a liberal ideology uh, paired up with some Southern instincts that just made him a likable character for both his state uh, and the rest of the country. Uh, but particularly for uh, Arkansas, they elected him uh, as governor uh, to two non-consecutive stints. And uh, that actually made Bill Clinton the second longest uh, serving governor in the history of the state. Yeah. So to me, that, that again, made him a pretty cool guy. Uh, I wasn't alone in that assessment. Uh, Bill Clinton was generally just a very likable character for the country. Uh, his approval rating was always acceptable. Uh, but it peaked in 1999 at 73% uh, of the U.S. population thought he was doing a good job. Uh, so it's important to note that in these this uh, period of the 90s, Clinton's presidency was a strong cultural shift for national politics. Uh, 1992 uh, lined up nicely with the fall of the Soviet Union. And so that election in 92 was really the first one since FDR's election 
all the way back in 1940 that the United States was not in some form of combat war or cold war with another country. We didn't really have a strong villain that we were fighting. Uh, and so Clinton was the first FDR president since FDR in the 30s that was not a veteran. So we had been leading, leaning on our uh, Warren Klein population for quite a while to lead us. Uh, and the Republicans had been able to really grasp that as uh their main constituency. Uh, since Lyndon B. Johnson's failures in Vietnam, they had been holding on to the presidency and power for 20 of the last 24 years leading up to 92 uh, with that conservative uh, military inclined population. So uh, in 92, uh, because they had been in power for 20 of the last 24 years, and George H.W. Bush, who Clinton ran against in 92, was a, also a pretty popular guy, pretty good president. Um, uh, Clinton's election came as a shock. So uh, the Ronald Reagan rally cry that the united the Republicans for 12 years uh, was up. And the party was forced to find a new rally cry for people to follow them and to cut into Clinton's widespread popularity. Another major player in these events uh, was going to be Special Prosecutor Kenneth Starr. So Ken Starr was the product of a Bible Belt Texan home uh, whose father was a minister. So Starr grew up straight-edged and well-liked by his classmates. He never drank, didn't date. Uh, he was actually voted class president for his junior and senior classes on top of being named the most likely to succeed at graduating. Uh, so when he left high school and made it to college, uh, he was selling Bibles to his classmates. So you're really talking about a guy who was born to and aspired to be morally pristine. So he followed that crusade throughout his political life, aligning closely with the political right, serving as an appeals judge under Reagan. Uh, he was solicitor general under George H.W. Bush uh, and even entertained running for Senate in Virginia. So he was at one point the favorite nomination to the Supreme Court, uh, but he was eventually passed up. So basically, uh, at this point in the 90s, uh, he had been preparing all his life to serve a very important role uh, and probably believed that God had called him to that role based on how the individuals around him were treating him. Uh, but yet it just barely kept leaving his grasp. Final main character that I'm going to talk about and give a quick bio for is going to be Newt Gingrich. So Newt was a new and exciting Republican uh, rising to power. He was a Southern conservative uh, who was shaping the identity of this new postmortem conservative party uh, that had been uh, really broken up uh, after the loss of Bush in 92. So Newt represented everything that Bush wasn't, and in a lot of ways, everything that the Republicans would become. I say that because Newt was on a mission for a conservative Christian America. He was rising to prominence uh, through being loud and violent in his political moves. Uh, he was known six years earlier to be the one who uh, filed the motion uh, that forced the resignation of the Democratic Speaker of House at the time, which was Jim Wright. So he knew that uh, violence and being loud was a great way to seize power. Uh, and so Newt would uh, continue to do that throughout his political life. So uh, those are our main characters. So to talk about the timeline of uh, the impeachment of Bill Clinton, we're really talking about almost a four-stage or four-scene play, okay? 
I, and this this is pretty common, I think, throughout any eight-year presidency. Uh, you have four major plays, and those four plays kind of closely align with what those elections were. Uh, so in Bill Clinton's case, uh, we're talking about uh, the first scene, which is from 92 to 94, the second scene from 94 to 96, the third scene from 96 to 98, and then the final scene from 98 to 2000. So uh, when you look at who's the major players in these four different scenes and what their objectives are, it's uh, generally always about uh, more or less the acquisition or the maintenance of power, okay? (laughs) So in 92, the uh, Democrats were running high. Uh, they had just got uh, a president in who they were feeling really great about. And uh, the Democrats were also in power uh, in both of uh, the House and the Senate. And so they were uh, in a really good spot to uh, pass the policies that they wanted to pass. Right. So to talk about this first scene, that 92 to 94 period in the context of the impeachment or the would-be impeachment of Bill Clinton, it's important to note that a lot of the characters in this story were really just getting their their feet wet with what would eventually become. So the scenes of these events uh, begin in 1994. Uh, So we're on the verge of the midterm elections in Bill Clinton's presidency. Uh, So the midterms as elections, uh, they tend to be an assessment of how the American people felt about the president's first half of their job. So it's an opportunity for the opposing party to poke holes into anything they have done poorly or wrong in the first two years and basically set the stage uh, for the run against them in another two years. So uh, at that time, there were two important uh, events. One is uh, the controversies that were playing out in the elections of 92. Uh, The Clinton administration was looking to quell them. Uh, So... They had appointed a special independent prosecutor or special prosecutor uh, whose name was Robert Fisk. Special prosecution was really this thing that uh, is a uh, ramification of uh, Watergate back in the uh, 70s with President uh, Nixon, uh, which we'll probably do an episode on in the future. Uh, But basically, so these independent councils uh, were created by... Uh, Congress back in those days uh, in order for us to uh, get a good look at whether there was anything going wrong with an elected official of any kind or an appointed official of any kind. And so that's basically what Robert Fisk was supposed to do uh, is he was looking into the specific controversies at hand, which was uh, the uh, Whitewater incident, uh, which is basically this, again, thing about uh the Clintons' past finances and see if anything's illegal at play there. Uh, important thing to note then is that uh, when he came out with his report and uh, basically exonerated the Clintons of any wrongdoings, uh, that same day, President Clinton reauthorized the, uh, let me double check the name, the Independent Counsel Reauthorization Act, uh, which basically changed who gets to appoint that person who does these independent councils from the executive branch through the attorney general to a panel of judges uh, 
which is how the original law was. Uh, it, it didn't want it shouldn't come from the uh, you know the executive branch. It should come from someone independent because it's an independent council. And so, uh, because of that signing of the bill, uh, the uh, the jury or the the panel of judges ends up uh, replacing Robert Fisk. They didn't like what he came out with uh, with his uh, report that he provided regarding the Clintons, and they thought that someone else should come in and do it again. And so. Uh, they found someone uh, named Kenneth Starr, one of our uh, main uh, individuals at the time. And so Kenneth Starr uh, basically uh, took back up the work that Robert Fisk was uh, previously doing. And he would start to investigate the Clintons, uh, albeit in a much more biased way. A couple months later, the elections uh, play out for the 94 elections. Uh, and now at that time, the major battle uh, that was being waged by Newt, Newt Gingrich and the rest of the uh, Republican minority uh, at the time uh, really had nothing to do with Bill Clinton's impeachment. Uh, they were just trying to seize back power for their party. Uh, so Newt, in this election of 94, had this crazy idea. And he thought that these midterm elections were being very underutilized in the past and that if the Republican Party uh, united on a strong plan for the American people, that uh, they could increase the number of individuals who were going to come out and vote, and thereby uh, overwhelm the elections through a shared agenda and seize back power. So Newt Gingrich makes this thing, and he's called he calls it the contract with America. Uh, and this fought uh, this contract uh, was really, in a fundamental way, the policies that the Republicans wanted to pass if they were given power uh, post this election in 1994. So they came out and had several points, and uh, this. Uh, policy and this idea that Newt Gingrich came up with, the American people liked it a lot. <laughs> okay, so uh, so much so that both the House and the Senate, uh, and it's important to note, uh, the House at that time was running 40 years of Democrat control, flipped in Republican favor, as well as the Senate flipping in their favor. So, uh, in many ways, this was uh, this was a mandate uh, for the Republican uh, Party. Uh, in this second stage of this impeachment via the uh, period between 1994 and 1996, they had their mandate uh, and they were riding high. So as Ken Starr was just uh, getting into his role and starting to you know, do his, his uh, investigation, the Republicans had just seized power in both uh, houses of the legislation and they were ready uh, to go and pass some policies. So uh, remember now, at the time, the political movement was conservative Southern-style Christendom. Uh, so as Newt and the Republicans were planning their battle tactics, uh, who better to help them out than Ken Starr, who had been living and breathing that mindset since the day he was born? Uh, and Ken Starr, again, remember, he had been kind of waiting his whole life for an opportunity like this. Uh, he was looking for a way to differentiate himself, 
to serve his people and to serve his God. Uh, so uh, he was ready to take a prominent role uh, in the opposition of the presidency. So I think another important thing to note that uh, is important in this time period is that ever since Clinton began running for the presidency in the early 1990s, he had generally always been very open about his shortcomings and struggles with infidelity in the past. Uh, so during that initial run for president, Hillary and himself went on TV and publicly discussed how he had not been faithful in their marriage uh, in the past, but that they were working through it. He was probably one of the most honest presidents in the history about this, uh, as we uh, have a long history of cheaters and infidelity in our leaders uh, that would just straight up lie or hide their sexual ambiguity. Uh, and that list is including Thomas Jefferson, Garfield, Clinton, Harding, and as well as likely cases from FDR, JFK, and, and even George Washington himself. Right, so um, the uh, Clinton's way of fighting his enemies was through action and his job and a little bit of comedy. So by all accounts, Bill was pretty successful at both, and he made huge ground uh, with actually getting federal with the with actually getting the federal budget balanced at, at running a surplus, taking schools from thirty five to ninety five percent internet connection. Uh, he passed the Family and Medical Leave Act, deactivated a ton of nuclear weapons. Uh, he kept poverty low, unemployment low, and even teen pregnancy rates low. So, of course, uh, Clinton shouldn't get all the credit for this, uh, but the 90s were, uh, by all accounts, one of the most successful decades in American history. So, uh, as the uh, Republicans are finding their new base and uh, understanding what their messaging is going to be and, and following up on that contract with America, uh, Newt, as their new leader and, and newly elected Speaker of the House, uh, distributes a document titled The Language, a Key Mechanism of Control. So this was basically a memo on what words Republicans should use when talking about themselves and what words they should use when talking about Democrats. Uh, so example words from the document uh, that should be used to describe Democrats were betray, cheat, collapse, corruption, crisis, decay, destruction, failure, hypocrisy, incompetent, insecure, liberal, lie, pathetic, permissive, shallow, sick, traitors. <laughs> and then examples of Republican words were candid, challenge, citizen, common sense, confident, courage, crusade, empower, family, lead, liberty, mobilize, moral, passionate, peace, pioneer, preserve, principled, prosperity, strength, tough truth. So I'll ask if uh, language is a key mechanism for control. Uh, I would have actually renamed this as language, a key mechanism of deception, uh, because that's essentially what the plan was, was to use language to associate people to certain categories with or without facts associated, right? So this is, uh, this is textbook name calling that uh, the Republicans are uh, nationalizing as a way that they're all going to mutually talk about. And, you know, Republicans at that time, uh, they all wanted to talk like Newt. And so he was giving them the ability to talk like him. Uh, so again, throughout this time, Bill tried really hard to stay focused on the job, not spend too much time worrying about the distractions around him. Uh, so 
between 94 and 96 as the independent council is uh, doing his investigations and poking through Bill Clinton's lice and uh, he's uh, indicting people and bringing them in and just trying to dig up anything that he can. Bill Clinton's really going out there and he's doing a really good job. He's fighting Newt through the through different things. They're finding common ground. Uh, they get closer to passing a uh, balanced budget. Uh, there's a couple government shutdowns, uh, which is an unfortunate uh, ramification that uh, you know we see today uh, with our own government shutdowns that happen pretty pretty regularly now. Uh, that kind of happens in this period uh, for the first time. Uh, but so that works out really well in Bill Clinton's favor. So uh, at the end of this scene too, uh, Bill's able to win a lot of uh, the popularity back. So at the time, this is an election cycle for the presidency. He's running against the uh, Senate Majority Leader, Bob Dole, uh, and uh, is actually the first uh, Democrat since FDR uh, to be reelected to office. So we're talking about a very successful accomplishment. That means the American people uh, are generally more satisfied than not with what Bill's been up to. which I think is a difficult realization for Newt Gingrich and uh, for Kenneth Starr. So uh, from 96 on in this third scene, uh, this uh, makes Newt's people get a little bit desperate. So uh, generally any type of dirt that Ken Starr had found thus far was not good enough. Uh, And so Ken and his associate uh, that had been working with them named Brett Kavanaugh, Yes, that guy, (laughs) the uh, Supreme Court justice. Uh, They had been working around the clock to dig up something uh, worthy. But uh, between the elections of 96 and the midterm election in 98, uh, Newt was looking for a new way to give Republicans the upper hand. So their contract with America was over. uh, And so they were trying to find the new thing that they could unite around. Uh, So the second half of Bill Clinton's presidency was his most popular and so the investigations at this time became more desperate to try and find something wrong with Bill Clinton. So uh, the king, the things that Ken Starr uh, had been investigating or started to investigate included that death of the longtime Clinton friend Jim Foster, who had killed himself, uh, as well as Filegate and Travelgate, which were uh, some small little controversies that they were trying to uh, dig up but weren't really finding any success. Because uh, generally nothing of substance was occurring on his end. So it was going so bad for Ken Starr, actually, uh, that he tried to resign from the post once uh, and take a job offer from Pepperdine University uh, on his latest quest for purpose and, and you know cause in life. But uh, so another important thing to note at that time was Clinton in a separate controversy was the defendant of a lawsuit from his days in Arkansas. That lawsuit was a sexual harassment lawsuit from a former staffer in Arkansas named Paula Jones. Uh, Starr, before he took this role, had provided legal counsel to Jones's lawyers uh, in the past. And so when Starr, uh, his resignation was unsuccessful and the Republicans uh, in power uh, basically forced him or, or made him stay in his role, he began to open up a back door, which was arguably illegal, uh, a channel of communication between the Paula Jones uh, independent uh, lawsuit and this uh, 
investigation from the Department of Justice. And so uh, Clinton's sexual inclinations, uh, it had been the source of a lot of American interest, and they just kind of kept popping up. You know, it's the Slick Willie uh, name had, uh, had been given to him since uh, 92, and he had admitted wrongdoing in the past. And so people just, they were very fascinated because they had not really looked at their presidents uh, like that before. So uh, through this Paula Jones case, some tips from an associate, Linda Tripp, uh, they finally got some moral issues they could start investigating. So uh, rumor had it at that time that Clinton had had an extramarital affair, another one, uh, with a White House intern named Monica Lewinsky. So uh, throughout this investigation, Starr and Kavanaugh uh, began secretly taping conversations Monica was having uh, with associates at the time about her personal life. Uh, this included her relationship with Bill. Uh, so that info was exactly the story that they wanted to tell. They took her in and they interrogated, interrogated her for hours without a lawyer, uh, causing her to develop a genuine fear for this guy. So uh, pretty soon after, once they, they brought in Monica and they found some wrongdoing that they could really investigate, they, they took Bill in pretty immediately uh, for an interview with the special prosecutor. So when Bill was asked about Monica, he denied the allegations. This denial was uh, what actually got him in trouble, as the affair itself was not illegal, but lying under oath was. And at the time when he was uh, talking to uh, the special prosecution, uh, he was talking under oath. He didn't know he was talking specifically about what they were investigating with Monica. They hadn't let that uh, let that fact be known to him. They were asking him questions about an entirely separate uh, conversation. So... Uh, for Bill, uh, this denial of allegations, it was uh, at that point already second nature to him. Uh, so he'd been doing it for many years now in a wide array of allegations that were uh, mostly untrue. And so they finally got him on something that actually was true. And in order to preserve his legacy and preserve what he was trying to do, he lied. Uh, and so this was finally the information that Starr and Kavanaugh needed to try and take Clinton down. Okay, so Brett was known to be asking the most descriptive sexual information from the Lewinsky affair uh, to be written up in that star report. And when they published that report to Congress, it was finally the feather in the hat that Starr was looking for. Starr ended up recommending 11 counts of impeachment for the ordeal, and the House would end up taking four. So in this third scene, this uh, 1996 to 1998, Newt sees this as an opportunity to try and hurt the Democrats with Bill's infidelity and perjury as strongly as he could. He made a deal with the Republicans in power at the time uh, that this was the issue they were going to run on, and he guaranteed that the American people would have their back. So uh, he knew from the time that uh, when he threw out uh, someone from office, which was uh, Speaker Wright about 12 years earlier, uh, that it can be quite a politically powerful move to position yourself in opposition of someone of authority. Uh, they were going to be fighting this. They were fighting this common ground of moralism that they did not want a president who was going to act this way. Uh, so the election of 1998 comes and they end up not winning it. And so Newt's bet was wrong. And the Republicans at the time that he made that bet with uh, forced him to resign that post. So he made way for Bob Livingston, uh, who actually didn't end up making it to confirmation because his own affair comes to light, and that forces him out of contention. 
So Dennis Hastert uh, eventually takes the speakership, uh, who was also himself a troubled character, uh, who we'll talk about later. In 98, that midterm election basically told Newt and the Republicans that they did not want an impeachment hearing, and they did not think that Bill Clinton should be impeached. Uh, it went through regardless. Uh, in this lame duck session before the new Congress had uh, been able to take uh, their seats. Uh, when asked why they would do that, despite the American people signaling clearly that the, through the election that they didn't want him to be impeached, it was stated that they did it because they could. Uh, and they being the Republicans, the impeachment they knew would last forever. It'd be a stain on Clinton and his otherwise very successful presidency and policies that he had been promoting. And if you look at politics today, they really were right in that regard. Uh, I think Bill Clinton in modern age is uh, much more referenced for his infidelities and this impeachment than he was for the successes uh, that took place in the 90s uh, under his watch. So uh, they went through with this impeachment on those four counts and two uh, passed the House of Representatives on party lines. Uh, and so Ken Starr was officially vindicated. He's finally able to serve the justice that God had uh, sent him to deliver, and he soon retired from that role after being named the uh, Times Person of the Year. Uh, so uh, he's going on with a holy glow of righteousness, being named Times Person of the Year, and uh, getting the President of the United States impeached on two accounts, uh, which is only the second time in history that any president has ever been uh, impeached up until uh, Trump is impeached twice. So uh, in the aftermath of all of this, uh, this righteousness drive would uh, cause Ken Starr uh, to really dive into some more damning activities. Uh, so he's an interesting person to look up and, and, and think about as a uh, minor character in American history from the 90s. 2010s, uh, 2000s, uh, 2020 even. Uh, he served as the president of Baylor University at the time of a slew of sexual assaults that he would be known to cover up, uh, which would eventually force him out of uh, Baylor's presidentship. Uh, he was also known for successfully defending Jeffrey Epstein's first trial in 2007. Uh, he forced a lot of people's hands to give Jeffrey Epstein a very sweetheart deal in 07 meant he had about 13 months of barely any jail time uh, for uh, the sexual molestation of children, right? Uh, so play stupid games, get stupid prizes. Uh, he eventually in 2020 uh, is taken on as one of Trump's defense lawyers in uh, the preceding impeachment hearing uh, that would occur 20 years later. Uh, where he basically comes out as like says this is this is not uh, you know okay for America to have this era of impeachment uh, when the reality is that that he uh, you know brought it up himself. So uh, while this subject uh, while the subject of the controversy was Bill Clinton, he probably ended up suffering the least from this impeachment uh, and the whole ordeal. The American people really got behind him uh, in this at the time. Uh, they knew what Ken Starr and Newt Gingrich was up to was wrong. Uh, and so at that time, uh, Bill Clinton's popularity skyrocketed. Again, in 1999, he had the highest popularity in his history. Uh, but still, those around him did suffer from this. So Al Gore, his vice president, lost the election in 2000, arguably because of this impeachment. 
uh, it was also used against Hillary Clinton uh, in her candidacy in one form or another in the elections of 2008 against Barack Obama and the election of 2016 against Trump himself. So uh, this concept of moralism, it rose as a lethal weapon and poison for America's ruling class. Yeah, so remember that politicians are people and people are sinful. So a battle waged on moralism is going to find a lot of casualties. So an eye for an eye, the aftermath of this moralism stance was not good for the Republican investigators. Ken Starr, uh, again, the Jeffrey Epstein stuff, the defense of Trump, uh, he actually had come out with his own affair as well. Newt Gingrich was forced to resign, uh, and he was later uh, brought up with his own affair. He tried running for president in 2012, generally was no contest, uh, was not a viable candidate at all. And uh, part of that, I'm sure, is the memory of uh, what he was up to in the 90s. Bob Livingston, who was second in command uh, and was not able to take the speakership because of his own affair. Dennis Hastert, who did take the speakership from Newt Gingrich, uh, ended up arrested for payments connected to a hush deal with uh, the children that he abused while a wrestling coach at Yorkville High School in uh, Illinois. And then Brett Kavanaugh, uh, who arguably is the one who gets out of this the least scathed, uh, ends up being uh, nominated and approved as a Supreme Court justice, although uh, most people in modern day will know of his, uh, his hearings for uh, affirmation, which uh, alleged his own sexual assaults in high school so I think there's a lot of questions at play here when we think about the ramifications of this in the future. Um, we can wonder if Kenneth Starr never broke the law or pushed the boundaries. Would Bill Clinton have been impeached? What would the election cycles of the next couple of years look like uh, if that controversy didn't play so strongly a part of uh, the next couple of election cycles? We can ask ourselves, should our politicians be playing judge, jury, and executioner with each other? Uh, to what degree should we be uh, investigating our uh, elected officials? Should it be an independent council? Should it be coming from the executive branch? Uh, because obviously there was a lot of uh, wrongdoing here, uh, really from both sides. And uh, I think what we lack is a source or an understanding of how accountability should be played out uh, without having uh, political forces or political ideology uh take a stand or a hold. Other interesting thing to think about is uh, that memo that Newt Gingrich had put out, language key mechanisms of control. Uh, how much of that did, uh, or do we still see today in our political discourse? Uh, is that really the foundation or the bedrock of uh, political name calling that we see in today's politics? Uh, what impact has it had uh, in the future and uh, how we have been able to work with each other and work across the aisle. Great. So thank you so much, everyone, for listening to this second episode of American Memoirs. I'm your host, Bo Gersnich. Super excited about uh, the direction that this podcast is taking and very thankful for you for listening in and uh, giving the chance for me to, to nerd out on some history. Uh, so very much looking forward to the next episode and sharing some more information with y'all. Thanks.